As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. For social movement kind of activities, 200,000 people is a lot. 200,000 is a very small percentage of the overall electorate, but it's a lot if you get them to all show up somewhere with a firearm. I worry that to some degree, Trump has gotten that sort of emotional register at such a high level. And it was obviously high in 2016. The reason he won in the first place was that the emotional register was as hot as it is. But he's clearly flirted with that. And I worry that that's something that's hard to unwind. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Steve Tellis is a professor of political science at the Johns Hopkins University and a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. He's just published a new book called Never Trump, The Revolt of the Conservative Elites, co-authored with Robert Saldine. If you want to understand the Never Trump movement, it is very helpful and readable. Professor Tellis has spent years studying conservatives and has a lot of writing that should be of interest to listeners of this podcast, including his book, The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement, The Battle for Control of the Law, which has important lessons for progressives about how the right built their own institutions, which is not quite how we generally think they did. We had a very interesting conversation, and I hope you'll listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Professor Tellis at the Johns Hopkins University. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Stephen. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, I'm Steve Tellis. I'm a professor of political science at the Johns Hopkins University and a, a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. I am the author most recently with Rob Saldine of a book called Never Trump, The Revolt of the Conservative Elites, but I've written a whole bunch of other things on public policy and American conservatism. So I want to learn a little bit about you before we delve into the book. Um, so where'd you grow up? I grew up in Washington, D.C. area. I grew up in Prince George's County. I was sort of born into the federal government. My dad worked for NASA starting in the 1960s, and my mom was a community college math teacher and eventually ended up in the National Science Foundation. So I grew up around this business, but in some ways in the what you might think of as the elite 
part of the American civil service, right? So there are people who work for, you know, who come from government who are in parts of it that are, you know, relatively low status, low prestige, where my, my parents were in the parts that generally people thought were where the smart and clever and high status people went. So I think that to some degree has affected how I thought about government. And you went to college locally. I did. I went to GW. I was actually one of the world's worst high school students. I had a 2.6 GPA in high school. And so I was very lucky to be going anywhere. I was very lucky not to be told to get a job working with my hands. You went to GW, graduated, and then went to the University of Virginia. For your PhD. But how do you get into George Washington with that kind of high school record? You must have tested really well or something. I tested okay. GW, I think, had a harder time filling the bottom of its class back in the day. Um, I went to college 86 to 89. So GW has come up in the world a bit since then. So I probably wouldn't have gotten in um, today. I knew I wanted to get go to GW from the moment I visited. I grew up in the suburbs. And I think by the time I got to the end of high school, I was very much through with suburbs and I really wanted to be in a city. And I went and looked around campus and I realized it really wasn't a campus and the campus was DC and that was exactly what I wanted. So So you probably studied politics. I studied politics and philosophy and I, in both in, in undergrad and in grad, I sort of pivoted back and forth between philosophy, political theory and political science. So I started out in philosophy and then realized that you would have to at some point take symbolic logic and that was like math and therefore that was probably not going to be my thing it's a little bit like the pre-med people who like run into the buzzsaw of organic chemistry and then realize that maybe they uh they should be studying international studies i realized that i was probably gonna not gonna do well with uh symbolic logic and i ended up in political science what was your dissertation at university of virginia about Oh, my dissertation at UVA. So the one thing I should say about UVA, and it's very important for understanding what's going on in the book, um, I was very lucky to study with three really fantastic conservative political scientists. Jim Caesar, who had been a, a student of Harvey Mansfield at Harvard. Steve Rhodes, who had been a student of Alan Bloom and Alfred Kahn, the economist at Cornell. And Martha Durthick, who was a student of Ed Banfield and James Q. Wilson. Those are all conservatives, and that was that was the core of my political science committee, and that was partially by design. I wanted, I considered myself a liberal back then, and I still do, but I considered myself the kind of liberal who, you know, who wants to learn from conservatives. Strangely, the first class I ever took as a graduate student was with Martha Durthick at MIT. Oh my she goodness! Was a, she was a visiting professor there, and I came in as a special student taking one class to test out graduate school. And that was with her. And she liked my work. She was affiliated with the Harvard MIT Center for at some point and was the director of governmental studies at Brookings for a long time. I wrote a paper about redistricting for her, I remember. Yes, I took a great I took a great federalism class with her. That's, that, what, that's um, what the class was, yeah. Yeah, well, that was the class that I ended up writing a paper that became my first book um, called Who's Welfare on AFDC and Elite Politics, which was trying to understand the politics of uh, welfare as a, as a sort of proxy battle in our larger culture war. So that was my first book that I published at University Press of Kansas. I graduated in 94 and I published my dissertation in 96. A lot of the early career of 
political science professors is a little itinerant as you sort of sort out where you're going to land and you're now at Hopkins. But tell me a little about that course of that career and how you built it. Yeah, so itinerant would be a very generous way to put my early career trajectory. Um, So I'll do it really fast. 94, I was at the College of the Holy Cross. 95, I was at Harvard. I was a postdoctoral fellow of Harvey Mansfield, um, the Harvey Mansfield. 96, I believe the technical term is I was actively seeking work. Um, At least that was the, uh, the status the federal government understood me to be in. 97, then I was at at Holy Cross. 98, I was at Boston University. In 99, I landed at Brandeis, where I was for six years, then got denied tenure because the book that ended up making my career, The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement, took so long to write. Um, Not all that is the the book's fault. Um, People usually blame the book. They're like, it was a bad book. You took too long, as if it was not, it was actually my fault for letting the book down and not getting it done um, as soon. But then I published the book in 2008. That's also when I got hired at Johns Hopkins. Hold on that for a second. So tell me about that book. Uh, The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement. Uh, That's very much the best book I've written and the best book I ever will write. It's a little disappointing to know that about yourself, that you've already written the best book you'll write, but I'm pretty sure that's true. I was very lucky to have tripped into exactly the right subject. Um, so after having written my first book, I wanted to write a book on conservative strategies for disentrenchment, um, which is a fancy way of saying that the modern administrative state that liberalism built uh, had all of these institutions to sort of entrench itself, to make it hard to change, right? The most obvious is Social Security. Because if you want to change Social Security, you both have to you know, pay for all the commitments you've already made, as well as the investments you're going to make for the future. Lots of liberal programs are entrenched by interest groups. So you think about modern system of public education is entrenched by the fact that we have large organized teachers unions. And this general phenomenon of entrenchment is a, um, a repeated theme in the history of conservatism in the last 40 years, right? How do you deal with the fact that liberalism had built all these very impressive defenses around its policy achievements? And so originally my thought was, oh, I'll write about everything. It'll be about education and welfare policy and social security, and it'll be all the whole thing, and it'll be comparing conservative successes along these different dimensions, then that turned out to be biting off more than I could chew. But I started doing some initial interviews on the law, which is a very important area where liberalism had entrenched itself in the courts, um, as well as in regulatory bodies and other things. It turned out that people were willing to show me everything, really show me everything. I started doing interviews with the Federalist Society. They let me go into their, literally into their file cabinet. Uh, I uh, got access to the internal files of the Olin Foundation, which was the most important conservative foundation. They gave me the whole run of all of their files. I was able to quote from everything I wanted. People were willing to let me interview them. And the main thing I learned was that the story was a lot less of a story of a giant right-wing conspiracy of a you know small number of people sitting in the Mayflower Hotel, rubbing their hands together and cackling 
like in an Oliver Stone movie, and a lot more of the strategy that became the modern conservative legal movement, things like the Federal Society, conservative public interest law, law and economics, was a matter of an enormous amount of trial and error, people trying things, things not necessarily working. It wasn't necessarily an instance of a, a big central conspiracy. And that's a story that I've told later on that I think too often liberals thought conservatives built their institutions through a big centralized conspiracy. So they tried to come up with one of their own. And I think that led to a lot of mistakes as opposed to having a, um, a lot of experimentation and then letting a lot of different things operate, even though some of them may look like they were um, in tension with one another. So anyway, so that was the book, The Conservative Legal, Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement. And one of the sort of lenses that I have in in talking to people in the progressive ecosystem is really a, an entrepreneurship lens. It's interesting that, that you discovered that because that I think is going on on our side, even though you've referenced attempts to make it not so, those attempts run into the realities, right? People have to change and pivot and try new things when things don't work. And it's interesting that that, that was going on because you definitely hear on our side there was this starting with Powell, this plan that, you know, to take over the country from the right. And it was very orderly and very top down and very funded from the big donors. And there's actually a nice article that um, my friend Mark Schmidt has written about the myth of the Powell memo. Um, the idea that this was the central thing where everything flowed from that. And, and that's pretty much completely bull. Um, and anybody who's actually done any serious history knows that that's massively overrated, uh, mainly because the main thing that came out of that, or that you could even most directly connect to the Powell memo, was all these first generation of conservative public interest law firms, which I argue in the book were incredibly ineffective. Um, and one thing is by 1980, there's all the conservative donors are immediately are recognizing that the investments that they made as a result of that particular Powell-like kind of strategy turned out to have been wrong, and they end up pursuing a different strategy that ends up uh, eventually leading to things like the Federal Society and the Institute for Justice and the Center for Individual Rights. But again, a lot of that was on the basis of trial and error, learning, people doing things and figuring out new kinds of things. And also, it was when the conservative legal movement was closest to business that it was least effective. And that's another, I think, story that progressives often tell is of conservatism as being a kind of business conspiracy. But one of the things I've argued is that the more it's been a business conspiracy, the less it's been effective. Why do you think they were so open to you exploring and interviewing and talking to them and, you know, giving you such access? There's a couple of stories you can tell. One, you know, I said before that I studied with uh, a bunch of conservatives. Um, Do you think so they thought you were a conservative? No, no, they knew I wasn't. I and I was open about that. But one thing I always do in, in all my interviews, I have a technique that I refer to as uh, offering up a hostage, which is that I always refer to somebody we both know at the beginning to show that I've got something at stake in the interaction. Right. So I've got a relationship. That if I really you know, misuse what they're telling me or I use it, do it selectively or whatever, that it's going to have consequences for me. The other thing is, I think just the fact that I'm networked in with other conservatives and I know them and 
they've worked with me before, there's a lot of people who can vouch for me, right? Who can say that, you know, he's not going to bias it in your favor. He's not going to write authorized. And there's lots of people who've written authorized conservative sort of histories, but that I'm not out to write a hit piece. I'm out to understand something. And the other thing is, I, I think, you know, I asked. Part of it is the question in some sense assumes what's not necessarily true. Some of it was persistent. So Henry Manny, who was the main entrepreneur behind the law and economics movement, and was a fascinating guy. It took well over a year for him to be willing to share his memories and his files. And that was just sheer persistence in convincing him that I actually was worth his time. Often people who are doing this kind of work um, don't want to wait around that long. Uh, And I got denied tenure waiting around trying to build some of these relationships and do some of this kind of work. So, A lot of folks on the progressive side see some of these institutions, the Federalist Society, as a real boogeyman. Having interacted with a lot of these folks, how do you view them? I mean, depends what you mean. Part of it is, you know, I'm a political scientist, so we, we tend more than probably people who are advocates to think, you know, it's all in the game, right? And if you see somebody who's really good at doing what they do, you sort of appreciate the craft. One of the things that I've been trying to do is convince people on the left of center side that there are important lessons to be learned from conservatives. So rather than seeing them and saying, oh my God, they're incredibly effective. Um, Isn't that scary? I keep thinking they're really incredibly effective. Why don't we actually learn why that is? And it's not always, again, the reason why people on the progressive side think it is. So in the book I use, in the conservative legal movement book, I have the phrase, the myth of diabolical competence. That is that liberals tend to look on conservatives and think they're evil, but they're sort of always perfectly coordinated, centralized, competent, uh, as I was talking about before, which is sort of an inversion of their own perception of themselves, which is kind of incompetent, but benevolent. And I think it's worth sort of reversing that a little bit and realizing how much conservatives were having to sort of paw around in the dark for a long time. And that conservative successes may require that liberals do some of that pawing around in the dark too. And I think that has implications in particular for financial flows on the center left. I've written a lot on philanthropy and one of the big arguments I've made is that a lot a lot of the problems in, on the progressive left side, at least on the C3 side, have to do with the dependence on project funding, which makes it really hard to do experimentation, to try new things, to do trial and error, to be opportunistic. And that that, that was one thing I did learn from the conservatives, right, is they were willing to to hand over money to the heads of their organizations and let them do the coordinating work rather than having that that work be done at the the funder side. So it sounds like your book was well-received. What did that lead to for you? And what did people say about it after it came out? It got very good reception. The conservatives liked it mainly because they thought that it told something that seemed like the story that they actually knew with all the warts and complications. And I do think there, I got a lot of attention from progressive people who felt like, you know, they got to see inside for the first time, right? There's a lot of, a lot of things they were, you know, the the Powell memo 
example is a good example of people trying to sort of imagine what it was like inside on the basis of, you know, um, something somebody scratched in the back of a memo and then sort of, you know, the back of a menu in a Chinese restaurant and then sort of imagining everything else that would have been there. You know, I got very good sales for a book of this kind. I got a lot of nice attention from historians as well. When you were in grad school, it used to be that uh, people who did more political development work generally often tended to use the work of historians and then added theory or conceptualization. And this book was all based on original primary materials that nobody had seen before. So it got really good attention. It resuscitated my career. I actually came very close from considering becoming the editor of a magazine, um, or the number two editor at a magazine, and quitting. I came very, very close. So when I go back and think about my own my own career, so it got me back back on track, got me a job at Johns Hopkins, um, and got me back in the D.C. area where I'd grown up. Did you ever have, I don't know, folks at the American Constitution Society or you know the the institutions on our side that were the analogs? or trying to be ask you advice or yes yeah and did they take it yes i did (laughs) so i think acs is an interesting example of this right so acs was one of those organizations that was created during that sort of giant right-wing conspiracy period right now when you think about um CAP was another one media matters but all those organizations that's they, they all came out of that same period. Some have been better than others. I do think almost all of them, Media Matters are a little different. It's pretty different than the kind of things I usually work on. But, you know, CAP was originally very much designed to be like Heritage. ACS was obviously designed to be the analog to the Federalist Society. And I always thought that was a big mistake, that thinking about strategy in terms of mimicry, right, to say, well, they've all got whatever, we should have that too, was the wrong way to think about strategy, mainly because the organizations conservatives had on their side were partially a reflection of their own weaknesses. They created those to solve a particular problem. So the Federal Society was created in part because of the weaknesses of conservatives in law schools, right? So they needed to create their own institutions to um, make up for that, right? Especially in elite law schools, right? Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Berkeley, places like like that. And consequently, it didn't necessarily make sense for progressives to create their own organization that would be a analog to the Federalist Society when the Federalist Society was an answer to a problem that wasn't the problem that progressives faced. So one thing you know we found was that you know from digging around a little bit was ACS was not particularly strong in the places where progressives really needed to be strong, right? That is, you know, there's plenty of representation of progressives at Yale Law School. I can tell you that at Harvard Law School and places like that. where they aren't is University of Arkansas Law School or BYU or places like that, which reflects a more general problem of the progressive movement, which is the weakness at building institutions in places that are sort of behind enemy lines which you can think of as also connected to the 50-state strategy kind of way of looking at the world. I haven't looked at ACS for in, in quite some time, but at least when I looked at it, that they seemed like they reflected that same general problem. 
of not building up where you were weak and sort of doubling down in some cases where you were strong or just building up things that were parallels to conservative institutions. Did you see that Rob Stein PowerPoint presentation about, uh, you know, what was on the other side that we, yeah. The concern. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I think, I think, well, again, a lot of that institution building was to a greater or lesser degree influenced by that Stein PowerPoint. Some of that, Stuff turns out to have been valuable infrastructure. I think CAP is a is a valuable piece of, of infrastructure. I think it actually evolved a lot from its original design. Uh, it turned out to be fairly flexible in response to what, what it needed to, to do. But a lot of stuff that needed to have got, been built in that period didn't get built and still is relatively weak of the kind that I, I talked about before. What do you think is missing? So I have a good friend who's a um, organizer in Texas, uh, who's actually running for state legislature in in Texas. And, you know, when she talks to me about this, she says it's just amazing how badly organized progressives are in Texas. Right. If you think of just the basic people doing blocking and tackling, you know, mobilization, all of that in red states is really weak, right? But a lot of those are red states that, you know, the demographics are moving in in the direction of Democrats, but they don't really have the kind of organization that you need to take advantage of it. And I think some of the political polarization that we've experienced is partially a function of, of that. You've got places that were red, but they were red like, you know, 60-40 or 55-45. But there's a big difference between that and 70-30. I think that's partially a consequence of the fact that there's just large swaths of the country where nobody meets anybody on the center left, where nobody hears them. They're just entirely invisible. There's nobody doing that that work. There's nobody prospecting for opportunities. You know, it's not the sort of D.C.-based organization. It's all of that kind of work, right? Now, again, I should just say my my project is not exactly the same project as the progressive left. I'm gonna, which we'll get into in a in a second. I'm a Democrat, but I'm probably from a different wing of the party um, than the progressive left. And there's probably more in that area of behind enemy lines post Trump than there was before. I mean, there's been an awful lot of things started and people working than 10 years ago. Certainly there's more of that. I'd like to actually like to see sort of more of a kind of organizing map of exactly where it is. I mean, certainly there's a lot of people out there organizing middle to upper middle class women in the suburbs. Um, That's great work. That's important work that wasn't going on before. I'd be interested in how much of that's happening in Montana and Texas and you know, I know some people who are doing some of that work um, and that's that's important stuff. But it's very hard to fund. It's very hard to um, really institutionalize in the um, the long term. I mean, you know more about this than than I do. But while I worry that some of that is going to be a temporary response to Trump. And then when Trump's not there anymore, a lot of that will not have been as deeply institutionalized as you would hope. That's sort of my longer term worry. And it's an odd thing to say, having just written a book that was all about never Trumpers. In a way, I think both some of the, the mobilization on the never Trump right and the progressive left is still too focused on Trump um, and not on 
on building for what could potentially be a very different long-term future. So what was the genesis of the Never Trump book? Uh, and how did you, you know, sync up with a co-author and how did that all get going? Yeah. So I wrote a couple of books actually between um, the rise of the conservative legal movement and this one, which I won't go through summarizing, but just to let you know how that affected this. One of them was called Prison Break, which was about how conservatives changed their mind on massive incarceration, about why in particular there were so many um, major criminal justice reforms in states and to a lesser degree, the federal government um, that happened with conservative support. And so I'd done a lot of, of work for the first time, really, with um, Christian conservatives, because they were an important part of that, doing that story. And I did the same kind of work that I did before, lots of interviewing, lots of meeting people, talking to them. So I, like everybody else, was very surprised by Trump winning. Despite being a political scientist, I'm a bit of a political science skeptic. I listened to the same people everybody else was listening to, um, and not in some sense my own instincts. And after the election, I was looking around like everybody else was thinking, what the, you know, just happened and what should I do and how does my whole worldview change? And so two things happened. One, I had been talking to Jerry Taylor, the president of the Niskanen Center, for a long time about, you know, just informally advising him and talking to him about building this relatively new think tank that was that was created by refugees from the Cato Institute who had sort of, uh, you know, gotten over libertarianism. And after the election, I realized that that was probably where my war work was going to be, right? If I was going to do anything for the greater good, Niskanen would be a good place to do it because they were connected to um, lots of conservatives who were the more evidence-based, open to, you know, the reasonable use of government power for the greater good. And because they had connections on the right, which most of my friends on the progressive left didn't, I thought, you know, that was going to be the big piece that in any kind of counter mobilization against Trump wouldn't come naturally out of the progressive left. And it turned out that one of the initiatives of that was a thing called the Meeting of the Concerned, which brought together a lot of the, um, the people, you know, D.C.-based conservatives mainly who had opposed Trump and were freaked out and scared after. The broader Never Trump movement was a lot bigger than just that meeting, but I realized there was something there that was interesting to study. These are people who had openly opposed their own party, in many cases supporting the nominee of the other party, which is an extremely unusual phenomenon. The scale of this, especially during the campaign, was well in excess of anything that we had seen in the modern era. And it turned out my co-author, Rob Saldine, who's at the University of Montana, had been sort of noticing some similar things. And we realized we were starting to write the same book. So instead of competing with each other, we decided to do a, um, uh, do a merger. So How has that worked out? Great. So I guess say one thing is, uh, it's not an accident that my last three books have all been co-authored um, because they've all been published after I had kids. And my ability to motivate myself to the same degree I did on the conservative legal movement book has been diminished significantly. It's very useful to have a co-author to sort of force you to keep working and not, you know, as uh, you know, the old song to sit around smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo. You have somebody you're responsible for. So it was really good. We divided the book up initially in terms of, um, so the book is organized by these different professional categories 
that conservatives are in. And that's an important theoretical part of the book to say that people rooted a lot of their response to Trump in the professional part of the party of which they were connected. And so we divided the, the book up. I did the initial drafts of the chapter on economists and lawyers and public intellectuals. That was economists and lawyers, mainly because I had written in that area and I had contacts and relationships and the public intellectuals, probably for some, some of the similar reason. Rob had took over the foreign policy chapter, the initial drafting. He had written a book on um, foreign policy and American development, political development, and he did the one on political consultants, partially because he drew the short straw, because um, there was one thing left and somebody had to do it. We did a lot of the interviews together, some of the interviews for one of the chapters or, or the other. There were a ton of interviews. Um, Rob, you know, we were very lucky to get a grant from the Hewlett Foundation, uh, thanks to Larry Kramer, that helped us get back and forth from Montana to DC to do a lot of this work. And so I think Rob would say uh, it took me a while to get me motivated. Um, that as I was very motivated to do the interviewing, I've always loved doing interviewing. I think it's the thing I'm best at. Um, I'm good at getting people to talk, but the actual writing, especially as I've gotten older, has just gotten harder and harder and harder. And part of it, I think it took a while for me to figure out what the book was about, that we had all these great, rich interviews so it was only, at least for me, once I saw that professional structure and I could really think about these people as embedded in these professional networks inside the Republican Party and as, in a way, serving as professional service providers to the Republican Party. And once I understood this as a party phenomenon and these people as distinct from other parts of the party that I could really imagine the through line as to what I was trying to say, at least in my chapters. Rob, I think, had a lot easier time figuring out what he was saying because he's a clearer thinker than I am. When I started my podcast project, I only had the faintest idea about this Never Trump movement based on you know reporting in the newspapers, I guess. And since then, I, I've talked to some of the same people that you've run across, and I found them to be really fascinating, right? And it's helped me to answer some of the questions about why that party fell in line and why Trump was able to kind of get the nomination and then consolidate the party. But reading your book over the last two days, I think answered a lot more systematically than my sort of probing more randomly. Tackle that a little bit for me. Why is it that that party that Trump was able to to bring everybody into line. And it obviously varied by profession, as you've laid out. In the middle of writing this, there was one really impressive piece of political science that I came across, which was the series of articles by Milan Svolik at Yale, where he's looked at, we can think of it as the trade-off between democratic norms and policy preferences. And he, he's looking at this as a mass phenomenon, and I was looking at the implications of this for, for elites, but I think they're roughly similar. If I'm a voter, right, I've got a bunch of policy preferences, right? I want whatever it is, you know, level of welfare policy or making abortion illegal or whatever. And I also have preferences for the maintenance of democratic norms, right? So I've got a kind of institutional preferences and I've got policy preferences, right? If my own party ends up putting up 
somebody as a nominee who's a threat to democratic norms, then, you know, at some point I'm going to have to make a decision about whether to support that person or not. And the only way ultimately to punish them is to support the other the other party, assuming we have a, a two-party system. So the thing Svolik argues is at a low level of polarization, right, you're likely to see a lot more of that kind of activity, right? So imagine that everything's at 60 and 40 on the on the football field or between the 240-yard lines. You only have to give up 20 points of policy preference in order to punish the nominee of your own party if they're violating democratic norms, and that matters to you. Now, imagine, however, we get polarization and the parties are at 80 and 20, or that are in the 220-yard lines. Or if you think about Michael Anton's famous Flight 93 article, right, that's really imagining that everything's 99 and 1. If you have voters who genuinely are offended by Trump, who think he's a a threat to democratic norms, but you think the price of acting on those institutional preferences is 98 points of policy preference, that's a lot to swallow. So I think that's one important way to think about, about Trump is he comes against that background of polarization and the perception maybe oddly for people like us, that Hillary Clinton was an especially malevolent force of democratic ideological cultural hegemony or something, right? That she was maybe un, you know, unusually harsh in how she was going to treat uh, conservatives, right? That she was going to roll over them under the, you know, the, the wheels of her massive progressive tank or something, right? And so that was a, you know, and that's a powerful meme on the, on the conservative side. So I do think when you think about 2016, it did matter a lot that it was Hillary. She had a particular resonance on that side. That So if you think about it, even for people who are genuinely offended by Trump and afraid of what he was going to do to democratic norms, they also had a feeling that there was a threat to democratic norms from the Democrats. They thought that the Democrats were going to stack the courts, that the Democrats were going to you know, do all kinds of things to the regulatory process that was going to mean that they couldn't. Um, you know, operate their own churches, that their, you know, businesses will be turned into instruments for progressive power. And so I do think that's really important for understanding. Sympathetically, it helped me because my initial instinct was to be so highly judging of people, of conservatives who went for Trump. And so I tried to imagine the inverse. And I know other people who tried to do that same sort of experiment the sort of, you know, what if the Democrats nominated Kanye West kind of experiment. And so I think that's a big part of the story. Some of these were also very particular to people's professional grouping. So the lawyers and the comparison between lawyers and the foreign policy people is really interesting, right? One, the lawyers, you know, Trump went out of his way to sort of pet them um, and treat them nicely. And that's partially because Trump, whatever his other flaws, has a very sixth sense for power and who has it. Real power, the power to really be able to hurt you. Lawyers had power through their alignment with social conservatives, and social conservatives have a lot in their power in the Republican Party because they can turn people out to vote, right, or not to vote. And that's real hardcore power. That's not soft power. That's hard power. And so consequently, Trump was willing to go and basically offer them the keys to the kingdom. Right. He was willing to engage in a kind of in a, an exchange relationship with them. 
by contrast, the foreign policy people, Trump went out of his way to poke them in the eye, right? And to say not only that he wasn't going to take their advice or um, hire their people, but that they were the problem and that his version of conservatism had no role for them. And so in addition to the fact that, you know, a lot of those guys in the foreign policy side were genuinely afraid of Trump and thought he was, frankly, disloyal. It was also the case that Trump was actively telling them that they were going to get nothing out of a Trump administration. The choices that Trump made to say he's going to pick the judges off a conservative list to really switch himself to being a pro-life, anti-abortion candidate, where he landed on immigration, trade, all of these things. It's very interesting how that played out often really strongly to his benefit electorally. Like he, he made a bunch of strategic moves that benefited him, some to go along with the, the Republican Party and some to take it on. Again, to go back to that point about Trump's sixth sense, one, and then we have a little discussion of that, of this in the book, drawing on some writing that my old professor Jim Caesar did. It's analytically valuable to think about Trump as a demagogue. And that's why I always thought about thinking of him as a demagogue as opposed to a fascist was a lot more, it made a lot more sense just analytically, right? A fascist has a theory, has a thing about what it is they want to do. They have a project. They want to form the people into something that they are not. A demagogue draws on the instincts and impulses of the people and then reflects them back to them. He acts as a kind of channel of their instincts or impulses. And what makes a good demagogue is the ability to see that, right? To see that unfiltered by ideology. Trump, I think, was able to see that a lot of the inherited ideology of the Republican Party and the conservative movement was in fact not very popular among the actual voters of the party, right? Again, because he didn't have that theory standing in between him and the voters. You know, one of the reasons why his most important technology is a very old technology, right? The technology of mass rallies is a very old democratic kind of technology, but it reflects that sort of iterative relationship between the demagogue and the people that he's um, he's speaking to, right? So the demagogue sort of gets, you know, realizes what it is that draws power out of his audience and then reflects it back to them. And so I do think there's something to the fact that, that that's why Trump was able to see something, you know, precisely because he just literally doesn't even understand ideology. It's not that he doesn't understand the conservative sort of public philosophy specifically. I just don't think he understands what it would mean to think through the kind of constraint of an ideology. And that allowed him to pivot in a way that lots of other conservatives couldn't. Um, so I do think that's a lot of what was going on in 2016. And that was to the degree to which he had a superpower. It was that, right? As he realized that, that you know, probably upwards of a half of the party was genuinely not being served by the ideological supply and that he could supply something different. The Never Trump movement didn't do very well. It's still flickering. It's got the Lincoln Project or a few things like that. What do you sort of conclude at this point in time about that 
that group of people and where they are and where they're going. Yeah, I wrote this book because I thought these people were within the constraints of their own background doing the Lord's work. They were sort of the protagonists, but in a way, they're also sort of like tragic heroes in my story. Tragic in part because the tragic hero is brought down by, by his own character, right? Something that he you know couldn't do but that. And I think one of the things that, and this is in some sense very Perlman-ish, they made a big mistake about, I think, about what to do in the aftermath of the 2016 election. And it's understandable in retrospect why they did it, right? I think they thought Trump was anomalous, was an accident, was somehow, you know, the earth all being moved off of its axis, but that somehow you could move the earth back onto its axis. And that's why a lot of the organizational activity that came out of Never Trump was all flowed into you know, supporting democracy, right? And there's all this sort of democracy, internal democracy promotion stuff that's come about. I think partially that's some of that's because, you know, foundations feel comfortable supporting that. They don't feel comfortable or they literally can't support more explicitly ideological or partisan activity. But my sense, and I've written this, it's in the conclusion of the book with Rob and it's in an essay we wrote called The Futurist Faction that we published through Niskanen Center, that basically argued that the never-Trumpers have been permanently dislodged as, you know, the kind of brain of the dominant part of the Republican Party. And so they were used to operating through a more or less homogenous party, a unified party. If you think about that as the only option, then it's either being connected to that dominant part of the party or oblivion. But we argue in the conclusion of the book that that's not the future. That, as we say, the future is faction, um, that both parties are going to increasingly become more factionally divided, which in a way is the more characteristic American pattern, right? That is, what's been done through third parties in other countries happens through factions within the two parties in the American system. We draw from a great book by Dan DeSalvo and party factions for some of this. And so you can see this in the Democratic Party already, right? The sort of DSA, AOC kind of wing of the Democratic Party has been building all the kind of institutions you would associate with a durable party faction, right? They're participating in primaries. They're developing their own ideas. They're developing their own policies, they're creating their own sources of data, you know, all, all those things that we associate with them. And they are explicitly thinking about themselves as differentiated from the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And they think about themselves as literally constituted in a different way than the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Now, again, factions, you know, are um, are complicated in that they're sort of frenemies with their um, the other people who are in the party, right? They're both rivals for power inside the Democratic Party, but then they have a common interest in beating Republicans, right? And vice versa. And that's the history of American factions is that sort of both competition and cooperation that parties have. And, you know, that sort of factional etiquette has broken down, right? We've forgotten how to have factions that both compete with each other and cooperate 
we're going to see. I think the Democrats are just starting to figure out how to do that. And they would have had to figure it out a lot more, except COVID-19 broke, broke down that process. We would have had to see a lot more actual factional negotiation with, between Sanders and Biden about what is it that the Sanders like wing was going to get in exchange for cooperating with 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 the Biden mainstream wing. But I think we're going to see something like that on the Republican side. Um, it should have been a lot further along, except those sort of never Trump Republicans didn't realize as quickly as they should that they were now a minority faction in the Republican Party and were always going to be a minority faction and therefore needed to build up the actual organization that would allow them to operate that way, right? As opposed to a temporarily displaced majority part of the Republican Party, which is how I think they they acted, that the Trump thing was just an anomaly and they could go back to their previous position. So I still think that's the future for this group is being the sort of professional and ideological suppliers of services to a minority but factional wing, but pivotal wing of the Republican Party. But a lot of that work has really not been done. Um, I partially blame the funders on this space that they put a lot of money into um, building democracy, into doing ranked choice voting, into doing stuff like that, but not into actually building power. It sounds like you feel like the electorate on the right is fundamentally Trumpist now, and that's going to continue. Yes and no. That is, I think that's the majority of the Republican electorate is going to be, you know, is more is more white, lower, you know, working to lower middle class. And they're inside a party with what I would, you know, Marxists used to call sort of a, you know, of the bourgeois faction, right? The middle, the upper middle class, but not not really professional, not social service wing, right? So you're not in the, you know, in, in class terms, you wouldn't be in that part of the Republican Party, right? But, you know, somebody who runs a small business and is in, you know, middle, upper middle class and goes to the country club, right? You know, those people need a party. And in our system, they're going to share that party mostly with a group of populists, but right now, nobody's really providing services to them. Nobody's organizing them. Nobody's getting them to think about themselves as having distinct interests that they can compete. And, you know, Republicans do. They have the governorship of Massachusetts and Maryland. That's not an accident. But nobody's really built organization on top of that. Right? Those are still very much personal personal rule rather than um, rule by an actual durable organization. And that's the kind of thing. I think Republicans need to do all kinds of places, and there's going to be a lot of opportunity for that, especially as the Democratic Party goes further left, as its progressive faction takes over in some states. That's going to create a lot of an opportunity for the more bourgeois faction of the Republican Party to actually be competitive. And I think, you know, again, Maryland and Massachusetts, you already see that because the basic way that those Republican governors run is as being um, adult supervision for the Democratic legislature. And I think Republicans can run very similarly, you know, in New York and New Jersey and places like that where progressives are going to, you know, are going to push the party pretty far to the left. And Republicans can say, look, we can provide decent government that's not going to, you know, completely take all the cookies away. So There seem to be quite a spectrum of 
amount of worry about Trump and his threat to democracy among the never Trumpers and those who kind of peeled off of the never Trump movement to support Trump after, how much do you personally worry about him as a threat to norms in the country as opposed to sort of at the end of the day, he's kind of another electoral figure. He's another politician. It's somewhat politics as usual. I was quite freaked out by by Trump in 2016, and I continue to be, unlike a lot of progressives, right? There were a lot of progressives I knew who thought Trump was just the reductio ad absurdum of previous Republican governance. Bush was terrible. Bush was an apocalypse. This is terrible. It's a little worse, right? But it's not like different in kind. And I probably had a less extreme, uh, you know, interpretation of previous conservative governance as much as I think it's become in some ways, you know, nihilistic and, um, and anti-analytical, right? It wasn't this bad. We've been taking some very big risks and that lots of things that we in the United States have thought as being outside our experience are in some ways things we have to start thinking about ourselves. So I, I thought a lot about the threats of civil disorder, that Trump has really quite flagrantly flirted with that, right? That you see a lot more people, you know, showing up for protests with guns. Now, part of that, you can say, you know, there's a lot of this is we have a political culture of triggering, right? So literally that's triggering, ha ha. But, you know, I mean, part of what those guys when they're, are doing when they show up with guns in the Michigan legislature or whatever, is they're just doing, you know, that's the same way that they're trying to trigger the libs in other ways, right? I don't think they're really actively trying to threaten people physically, right? But one thing is, right, once that sort of thing starts becoming part of our experience, it doesn't take a lot for somebody to make a mistake and pull a trigger and then things get get ugly. I worry that we're flirting with that kind of thing. And, you know, the aftermath of, you know, if Trump loses, I can imagine, especially if he loses close, if Trump doesn't accept the result. I've been worried about civil disorder in response to COVID-19 and lockdowns. All of that, we're taking a lot of risks, right? And the fact that they haven't yet completely blown up is sort of remarkable, I think. But we're getting too close to being like other countries that end up experiencing open civil military disorder. And being in D.C., right, I have to admit, I'm slightly worried that this is the place people are going to march on. And again, it doesn't have to be a majority. It doesn't even have to be a very large, right? You get you know, this is, gets to a point about political science. We're not very good at measuring intensity. And for social movement kind of activities, 200,000 people is a lot, right? 200,000 is a very small percentage of the overall electorate, but it's a lot if you get them to all show up somewhere with a firearm. And I worry that to some degree, Trump has gotten that sort of emotional register at such a high level. And it was obviously high in 2016. The reason he won in the first place was that the emotional register was as hot as it is. But he's clearly flirted with that. And I worry that that's something that's hard to unwind. He also seems to pay attention to the way leaders have 
been acting in Turkey and Hungary and Poland and Russia and places like that where where he seems to honor pretty illiberal actions and one wonders like what his limits are. Trump has been a lot more willing to rhetorically do that stuff rather than, you know, you know, you know, Erdogan's actually shooting people, right? I mean, he's actually killing people and jailing them. And up until now, that's not what Trump has been doing. Part of it is that Trump just doesn't know very much about government. And that comes up over and over again, right? He literally just doesn't like know, you know, which is also the case. Remember, he's never run anything that wasn't an organization that was uh, simply a creation of himself. You know, if you think of it as compared to our former secretary of state, right, who ran Exxon Mobil, right? You know, he had the experience of coming into a fur, you know, a position that was not his own, right? And then having to run something like that, right? Trump doesn't know where any of the bodies are buried. He doesn't know where the levers are, right? Um, he's learning. Sort of. I don't even know that he's learning that much. Well, right? he, learns, I mean, he learns that there's inspectors general and then he starts to to remove them you know it's yeah I and mean, there's people around him right who i think have realized that one of the ways to appeal to trump right is to is to find the thing he would want and then kind of do it with the hope that he would approve of it later on that's different than trump sort of knowing where the where the levers are what would a second term under trump looks like I, i'm partially not mentally allowing myself to go there I'm actually an inherently highly optimistic person. I have a more conservative disposition. And part of a conservative disposition is the belief that actually a lot of things are best dealt with through just being left alone to sort themselves out on their own, right? Because I generally think that the world, you know, you know, left to its own devices, people find lots of ways to solve problems of their own and the world somehow seems to keep chugging along. And this has obviously been testing some of that basic optimistic tone of mine, right? You know, if Republicans lose very significantly in 2020, that will create a lot of pressure for a minority faction to develop in the Republican Party. I do think that the Republican Party would have to operate very differently if it had to make decisions through factional negotiation. And this is the sort of hope for liberalism that Rob and I have in the book, is part of what's encouraged illiberalism is the single faction form of governance, right? Which allows you then to make, you know, to, to write legislation in the speaker's office, that kind of centralization, as opposed to having factions having to negotiate. That's a form of partisanship that's more consistent with a kind of temperamental moderation. And so I do think after 2020, if Republicans lose really bad, that will happen. A number of Republicans will say that these populists drove us into a ditch and we can't just sort of throw ourselves in with that mode of governance anymore. And we're going to have to end up in this frenemy relationship with the dominant, you know, Republican faction. We're going to have to build up our own stuff. Um, I do think, on the other hand, there'll be a lot of people who are going to be very unhappy about being governed by a very large Democratic majority. And that leads you to the civil disorder stuff I talked about before that I think is a non-trivial risk. And maybe uh, 
challenged by a Trump kid for the nomination next time. Possibly. Although, again, I, I think that's the kind of thing that would be hard to have happen if you have a, you know, like a nominating process where the minority faction gets a veto, right? Where the minority faction doesn't get to decide who the nominee is, but they can say, you know, that's not that's, our system that's, though, but that's too far. That's too far out. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, that used to be how the, how the parties did in fact, you know, that's why the Democrats had a supermajority um, rule that was partially so that the South could have a veto. Right. And it's not inconceivable to me that you can imagine a process like that going, going forward where a minority faction will at least have that much influence over the decision-making process. Is it too soon for you to be percolating the next book? No. So I've got a couple. One of them is a short one that's connected to some things that we've been doing at the Niskanen Center. So we've been trying to think through that think tank about what is sort of a liberal political economy look like. And a liberal political economy is distinct from a populist and a socialist tradition, right? And I do think there's a great liberal, non-socialist, non-populist, non-nationalist tradition. Keynes is the hero of that, right? And Keynes very much thought of himself as a liberal, right? There was a liberal party in Britain, and he thought of himself as a liberal and not as a not as a laborer or socialist man. And that's how I think of myself. And there's a radical reforming version of liberalism that isn't the kind of milk toasty moderation that we associate with at least one version of sort of moderate Democrats, which is the tradition I've come out of. And so I'm thinking of writing a short book about what is that sort of version of liberal political economy that is sufficiently ambitious to deal with the problems that we have now. And that's one of my critiques of my own side is that we're like, you know, faced with, you know, genuinely titanic breakdowns in our form of political economy and people want to, you know, hand over a uh, little tweaks here or there um, and clearly something more fundamental in our political economy is broken down. So I think the next book may be a short one that sort of says, what does a sort of liberal political economy look like going forward? There would be versions of that that you can imagine on both the right and the left, because now one of our phenomenon is liberals are divided. Liberals, as I understand, John Stuart Mill kind of liberals are divided between the parties and both the parties have increasingly liberal elements in them. And so what is a political economy that that would appeal to that sort of that kind of liberalism look like? Is there a question I haven't asked you that you'd like to answer? Oh, we could spend uh, hours looking at this, uh, but I think I, you, you've gotten everything I was uh, I was looking for. Again, one of the things I want to emphasize for your listeners is most of the book is storytelling. And I think one of the things that I try to do in my books and Rob tries to do too, right, is to um, allow people to tell their stories. And so while there's, you know, a little bit of an analytical structure there that's in part in the overall way the book is organized, I think a lot of your readers will, uh, your listeners will appreciate hearing what these conservatives thought about these situations in their, in their own words, which we often don't get to hear. One of my favorite parts of the book was the discussion of religion. Why were some people really freaked out by Trump and some people weren't? And I do think, you know, religion played a role in that, right? It's not an accident that there were a lot of 
Jewish and Mormon never Trumpers. One of the ideas that was one of my small contributions to the book is this idea of a catastrophic imagination. That is, how much can you imagine things getting really, really bad, right? How much is that sort of culturally or psychologically available to you, right? And so both the Mormon and Jewish traditions have a kind of culturally available idea of communal destruction, right? Mormons, you know, they send ritually, they just send their, you know, people out to here and to visit the sites where they're, you know, where there were attempts to sort of destroy them all, right? So that, you know, that's available to them, right? And I remember doing the interview with Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review, where we kept trying to get him to go there. And he just couldn't, he just, you know, yeah, he didn't like Trump. He was offended by him, but he just had this instinctual sense that America was going to be fine. That's a, a sort of part of politics that we often don't think about very much, right? We often, you know, especially political scientists tend to think about, you know, we think about actors as operating on a unidimensional issue space from zero to hundred and you can put them all in that, right? But there's this whole other register that is not really correlated necessarily to ideology that I do think is probably correlated somewhat to those institutional dimensions that we talked about before about, you know, how much you care about democratic institutions and how much you're willing to trade that off against policy preferences, that's probably correlated to that. But we're not very good at thinking about why people weigh that sort of stuff heavier than others. Some people have read that Trump kept a copy of Hitler's speeches by the bedstead and that it's not very hard to extrapolate from that to he'd love to be Hitler, right? And that and that's available to to Jews in the way that you're Yeah, I mean obviously you're going to interpret that differently depending on your own experience. And you know, part of my background is my father's side of the family were conservative Jews and my mother's side were Southern Baptists. I'm sure if you were to do a lot of therapy on me, you would find that somehow balancing those two things is like, you know, and so I, I, I get that. Right. And the, the other part of me is like, you know, he's, he doesn't even read. Right. So he's doing something with that. There's something ritually he's doing with that thing of having a Hitler book by his bedside or whatever. Right. And this goes back to my point of being a demagogue rather than a fascist. Right. They're both pretty bad. But again, the thing that is characteristic of Trump is he doesn't really have a clear program, right, in a way that a fascist would, right, that would have a really clear idea of what he was doing and what institutional changes. There's the kind of improvisation that you associate with demagoguery, right, that I think is more characteristic of Trump. And so I think that's where I'm probably on that, that scale of, you know, how bad you think things can get. I'm still probably on the equilibrium side, right? At some point, there is a powerful force in the universe pulling toward equilibrium. But I understand why other people don't see the world that way. It does seem like he tries stuff, and if he gets enough negative feedback, if he touches a hot stove, he pulls away from that direction a bit. Right. And so if people, yeah. if people you know, are vigilant about corralling him along the way he can only do a certain amount of damage yeah now part of that is i think you know demagogues are naturally you know they're reactive right they they respond to action rather than having a program in which you say look you know we predicted obstacles and we're just going to run through them or grind under them 
and it's also, I think, the, the case that Trump is naturally a performer, right? So it's the performative rather than the delivery side of this that matters to him. And having made the performative point, whether or not you deliver on the thing is a lot less important. Well, it's been definitely an honor to talk to you today. Really enjoyed it. Anything else you want to say? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. That was Stephen Tellus. His new book is called Never Trump. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistance-war.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.